Welcome to today's episode of 15 Minute History. I'm Alina Scott, and today we have a special treat for our listeners, an interview between founding host Professor Joan Newberger and Associate Professor of African and African Diaspora Studies and Vice Provost for Diversity, Professor Edmund T. Gordon. This never-before-published conversation was recorded in April 2019 and discusses topics that are even more relevant in 2021. This includes the racial geography tour Professor Gordon leads, histories of landmarks across UT's campus, and the history of the Eyes of Texas song. To follow along with the contents of this episode, we invite you to visit racialgeographytour.org and visit 15minutehistory.org for more resources. Thanks as always for listening and enjoy the episode. This is 15 Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and anyone interested in history, featuring the minds and voices of the University of Texas at Austin. Hi, this is Joan Newberger, and this is 15 Minute History. Today, our guest is Edmund T. Gordon, Ted Gordon, who is Vice Provost for Diversity at UT Austin, and he's also the founding chairman of the African-African Diaspora Department. Ted, welcome to 15-Minute History. Thanks for having me. So for years now, Dr. Gordon has been offering on and off a tour of the UT campus that highlights the ways that campus space and buildings are racialized and gendered and politicized in various ways. And now he's put that tour online with the help of the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Service in a brand new digitized version. And today we're going to talk about the tour itself and about its new website presence. So let's start with the origins of the tour. When and what made you want to start? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, And there's no real answer to it. Uh, I don't know how long I've been doing it, and I'm not quite sure when it started. And uh, the impetus for doing it is also foggy. Uh, It probably started uh, somewhere around 2000, uh, which means I've been doing it for about, well, that's almost 20 years now, I guess, getting getting close to that. And I think it grew out of uh, requests that were made to me as a young faculty member here to talk about the racial history of the University of Texas. Uh, I remember being invited to uh, talk to housing, the housing folks, uh, staff, Uh, about racial history. And I think one of the things I wanted to do was to talk about the history of the university being integrated in relationship to its racial past. And being that it was a housing group, I think I began to integrate some of the uh, ideas about building and architecture into uh, that discussion. So it actually started out as a slideshow. And then at some point, there was someone from out of town who was visiting I was talking a little bit about the racial history, and I was talking about, well, you know, we actually have Confederate statues on campus, and there's a Confederate flag that flies. And I said, well, hold on a second. Let me show you. And we, a nice day, we went out and started walking around. And I think that's the, the origins of it some, some time ago. Mm-hmm. And um, you've been doing it on and off for a while. How, what kinds of responses have you had? Like, do people come up to you while you're talking and engage with you or— Sometimes I do, absolutely. We have people who join the tour as I'm doing it and, you know, ask if they can uh, follow along. And we certainly have a lot of eavesdroppers and folks like that. Almost all the responses I get uh, from both onlookers and people who are on the tour has been positive 
well, I know this to be the fact, there's that not that much readily available kind of history of the campus and also not many tours of the campus itself that are available to folks outside the ones that are given to prospective students and all that. So I think there's a, a fair amount of curiosity amongst students and others about the environment that they're walking through on a day-to-day basis. So people seem to, to enjoy hearing about that and have a, a real, um, they, they, they want to know more about Mm-hmm. There's a lot in the in the ordinary tours that the tours don't go into, history of the tower, the kind of history that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. What made you want to put it online? Well, there was a couple of things that made me want to put it online. Um, well, it wasn't my idea, first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea came from a young person who was working with uh, us up in uh, African-African Diaspora Studies. She was the we called her electronic something specialist or something like that. At any rate, um, she was also the person who was helping with my calendar and helping to schedule the, the tours that I was doing. And she saw that the demand for the tour was becoming um, larger and larger, and it was taking up more and more of my time. And then she also has this kind of digital and uh, media background and thought it might be a good idea. And I think she was actually the one who got in touch with Lates here, and they jumped on it for whatever reason, and that's that's how it got going. So it wasn't even really my idea. For me, really will help because I, I spent a lot of time giving tours. I gave 25 last semester, mm-hmm. and that it's a large amount of time. I've got a lot of other things going on. So and also we wanted to be – people thought that it would be good to have it be available to a larger audience um, – and so that's that's what's behind it. So the tour begins at the Littlefield Mansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you start there? Well, uh, part of it is fortuitous. In recent years, my office was across the street from Littlefield Mansion. And so rather than having me hike someplace else to begin, <laughs> it seemed like a reasonable place to begin. But it also is the Littlefield Mansion. Littlefield personally had a lot to do with the origins of the university. But even more than that... The Littlefield's positionality in Texas society is, for me, uh, kind of indicative or emblematic of the folks who played the key role in terms of, in the early years of the university, deciding that we needed one and also serving in the top positions in university. Littlefield's biography, in many ways, really brings together a lot of the forces that created the early university as it was. And so it's, plus there's a building there that's named after him and it's right across the street from the 40 acres. So there's, there's just a number of reasons why it's a reasonable place to start. Well, let's talk about his biography a little bit, because mm-hmm. as you say, it, it really brings together a lot of the different ways that allowed white European people to come to Texas and make a lot of money and be able to then found a university. Mm-hmm. So first of all, he comes from a slave-owning family. Yes, he does. Um, and from a, Mississippi. A cotton, a cotton-producing family. Absolutely. And why did he stop farming cotton? Well, the big issue for Littlefield and all the rest of these folks was the Civil War. Uh, And so he went off to fight the Civil War in 1861, was injured. Uh, He had his manservant slash slave there with him who rescued him on the battlefield after he was injured and brought him back to Gonzales, Texas, where he recuperated. But that was the the biggest issue. So after the end of the Civil War, there's a problem of labor. Uh, In other words, where do you get enough labor now that the enslaved folks are are free to be able to carry on. But there's also uh, problems with some disease and various other kinds of things, financial disruption after the end of the Civil War. 
in the time of Reconstruction. And so he finds it difficult to be able to rebuild his cotton uh, growing operation and then stumbles on to cattle, longhorn cattle. Mm-hmm. And so he started raising cattle. He had always, evidently always been raising cattle as a sidelight on his plantation or in, his, in the area that he owned. But he discovered that by raising his own cattle and then buying cattle from neighboring uh, farms and plantations and then driving them north to Kansas that he could make some money. I think his first drive was in the 1870s and he made a fair amount of money. And then from then on, he didn't actually drive the cattle himself, but he went into that business and became a cattle baron, owning property you know, throughout central Texas, up in the Panhandle, and then in uh, New Mexico and west Texas, ended up controlling a huge amount of, of rangeland. And where, where did all that land come from? Well, the, the land comes from, one of the things I talk about on the tour is, Littlefield was an ex-Confederate, and so in the period of time immediately after the Civil War, he was very much against what he would consider the invasion, but the occupation of, of Texas by federal troops. But it's those same federal troops in Calvary who were able to clear West Texas and New Mexico, and particularly the panhandle of the Comanche and other Native Americans who were there, which opened up that territory for people like Littlefield to be able to exploit them. And then simultaneously, the massacre of the buffalo, over 20 million buffalo, uh, created what uh, Littlefield would see as virgin grass for his longhorns to feed on. And so it's that kind of combined operation, plus the advent of the railroads pushing west from Kansas City, St. Louis, and Kansas City into Kansas that uh, enabled him to to make millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. There are rumors that there are slave quarters in the basement of the Littlefield House. There are rumors, but of course, Littlefield House was built in the early 1890s, or he, he occupied in the 1890s. That's 30 years more or less after the end of the Civil War. So, of course, there were no enslaved people who lived in the house. However, ex-enslaved people did. We know that Nathaniel Stokes, who was his manservant ex-slave till the day he died, lived in the carriage house, above the carriage house and stables in the back of the Littlefield house there. And so I think that the uh, quarters that exist in the basement of the Littlefield Mansion were probably quarters for domestic servants, and many of them undoubtedly were ex-enslaved people, maybe even his own. So we've really just scratched the surface of Littlefield's history, and mm-hmm. let me just say at this point that there are additional resources on the website that mm-hmm. go into more detail of all the things that we're going to be talking about. Um, you moved from the Littlefield House to what used to be called the Women's Campus. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this also is a fascinating piece of history that I didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been here for a long time. So can you describe the Women's Campus and its architectural layout and what was significant about that? Right. Well, the uh, the original housing for women on, on campus was over by where the, um, the Flawn Academic Center is now. Um, but in the... Um, the 1820s, Littlefield, in his will, left monies and a piece of property to build a Littlefield dorm, named after his his wife. Uh, it's a dorm for freshman women. And then in the 30s, the university decided to create uh, other living spaces for women in that vicinity. Andrews and um, Carruthers were, I think, both opened in 1935. And so they created a woman's side of the campus. The main building there kind of defines the whole space 
is uh, Gearing Hall, which is the Home Economics Building. And if there's any question about who that's for, there's a sculpture of a woman and child on the facade there. And they also put in Anahis Gym, which is uh, a gym for women, as well as playing fields for women behind the gym and a tennis court uh, just to the south of the gym for women. So it's an area campus for women built behind on the north side of the tower. And in the in the tour, I talk about the symbology of, of putting women outside of the public sphere, outside or on the opposite side from the entrance to the university and what that means in terms of uh, the gender ideologies of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about how um, Gearing Hall was designed by the same architect who designed the tower. The tower is our big administrative center. It's the first building that on campus, it was where it's where the president's office is housed now. The central library used to be there. Uh, it's a big, important, tall building. Um, and the same person who designed that designed Gearing Hall as a flat, sort of circular building. And the gendered nature of those two structures is really seems really clear. But you go further than that and talk about the way they're placed and the way the tower even looks. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, The point I'm trying to make uh, in that whole section of the tour is to talk about how it is that space is gendered and space in terms of location of things, but also the the design, the architecture, the naming, etc. And if you look at both the the way in which the original women's dorms, if you think about Littlefield, Carruthers, and Andrews, Blanton wasn't built until 1955, so the Honors Quad is only formed in the 1950s after they put Blanton there. So it's it's a U-shape, it's an open U-shape that faces to the gym. And then you have uh, Gearing Hall, which is placed right on the axis, the, the north-south axis behind the tower to the north of the tower, where there's no mall leading up to it. And it opens up, it's also U-shaped as well, and it has a gateway which opens up to the south, with the tower looming up above it. So it's clear to me that there's a kind of receptacle aspect to the architecture to Gearing Hall and a phallic kind of aspect to the tower as a seat of power and the kind of the public symbol of the university, and very masculine in that kind of way. So there's a femininity and a masculinity about the way the architecture is, is designed. And Cray was the... Um, the main uh, consulting architect for all those buildings and um, either implicitly or explicitly the gendered aspect of it is very clear. And then you you walk around to the west side of the tower, which also has a really interesting history. The west mall is filled with these large planters and limestone walls. Why was that? Well, uh, the west campus pretty shortly after the university was opened in 1883, became an area of residence for originally faculty members and students. Uh, Now it's mostly students. And if you look carefully at the West Mall and you look at the planters and you look at the trees there, you'll see that the trees are much younger than, say, the trees on the South Mall. And so they're about 40, 50, 60 years old. So if you think we're in 2019, you go back 50 years from now, you're talking about the 1960s, the late 1960s, So on the West Mall, which leads to Guadalupe and to the West Campus, where students are on the other side, think about what students were engaged in in the late 1960s. There was a lot of political activity, civil rights, uh, anti-war, free speech, uh, and all those things uh, were in, um, in fine form here at the University of Texas. And students used that West Mall area as an area of, of congregation. There was a, um, a relatively conservative 
president of the Board of Regents, Frank Irwin, we've got the Irwin Center named after him, who was particularly incensed by the students' intransigence or their rowdiness in terms of their politics. And one of his ways of doing dealing with it was to order that the university convert the mall into what we have today, which meant putting walls up and down Guadalupe and putting planters in the middle of the mall and planting trees and in other ways making it difficult for students, large groups of students, to access, really control the access to the campus and to discourage the assembly of students in that particular area. So it's a politicized landscape, very pretty, but political. Let's talk about the statues on campus. Statues, everyone knows, have been in the in the news, have been controversial politically. We have some new ones of civil rights heroes, Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, Barbara Jordan, and other statues are only marked by their former pedestals. So uh, what's that about? We should talk yeah, about no, the, no, the statues. I, I learned a, a new word with this, uh, the removal of those statues. They're, they're actually plinths. Okay. Who knew? <laughs> and the plinths are still there, uh, uh, and the, actually some of the statues are still there. I don't know if you've been to see the... Uh, the Hogg statue, which is the been return re- of James yeah, the Hogg, returns yeah. of James Hogg. Yeah, I wanted Hogg. to ask you about that. Right. Too. So the statues were placed actually ultimately in the ni- early 1930s, but George Washington Littlefield began thinking about having statues be placed on campus probably 1915, 1916. 1915, if you think about it, that's 50 years after the end of the Civil War. There are some historians who claim that Littlefield was the wealthiest ex-Confederate. And he was very active in the state of Texas and elsewhere in terms of trying to uh, memorialize the Civil War and the folks who fought in it. And he was a very big proponent, as you were mentioning earlier, of of the Lost Cause. In fact, he and J.H. Reagan were some of the biggest uh, proponents of that. The Lost Cause is an ideology which tries to say that the Civil War was fought to preserve actually the Constitution and the individual states' rights to preserve what they considered to be one of the key aspects of the Constitution, which is the right to private property. And so they want to make the claim that what the Civil War was about was a noble cause to enshrine and further the constitutional rights that were originally granted, that the cause of the Civil War was not slavery itself, but this issue over constitutional and states' rights within the context of the Constitution. So one of the things that uh, is interesting in the inscription that existed on the wall just to the west of the Littlefield Fountain. It's an inscription that talks about Littlefield's uh, giving the money to constructors. And, and one of the things that it says is that the Civil War was fought for states' rights and doesn't mention slavery at all. So slavery gets disappeared from it. So Littlefield is a very big proponent of that, and so is J.H. Reagan. In fact, uh, they played a major role in placing the um, the memorial to the Confederate dead, which is at the entrance to the state capitol grounds, which has Jefferson Davis as the uh, the largest figure there. Littlefield also, as a proponent of the lost cause, unlike other proponents of the lost cause who really look to Robert E. Lee as the key figure in the Confederacy because he's a less political figure and one who's less identified with slavery than Jefferson Davis. Littlefield 
and Reagan were very big Jefferson Davis folks. So Littlefield actually gave the major part of the money for the Jefferson Davis Memorial that's up in uh, in Kentucky. And he decided that he wanted to have Jefferson Davis, as well as Robert E. Lee, Albert Sidney Johnston, J.H. Reagan, and Hogg, James Hogg, statues built on campus as a memorial to the lost cause. And his original idea was to have a huge bronze arch that extended over the south entrance to the 40 acres with Jefferson Davis right in the center of it all. That got changed because there was some backlash, actually even before Littlefield passed in 1920. Littlefield put this idea and the money for it into his will, but there were people on campus who didn't want as much of an association with the law's cause as Littlefield and some others did. And there was a back and forth about that. And so that's when uh, it was decided to add the statue for uh, Woodrow Wilson. And also when it became clear, particularly after Littlefield's death, that there wasn't enough money in the will to build the entire arch, that's when they decided instead of the arch to put the Littlefield Fountain, which was a memorial to World War I. So the idea then becomes that there's a lost cause aspect of it, right, which was what Littlefield's original wish was, but there's also a notion of a national unification around World War I, but also particularly around the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. Because Woodrow Wilson, of course, was a Democrat, a Southern Democrat. He also was a white supremacist and um, resegregated the army, resegregated the federal offices in Washington, D.C., wrote histories that were uh, relatively um, sympathetic to the antebellum South and critical of Reconstruction. So this was the kind of figure that people like Littlefield, but also the leadership of the university could get around. Or And, and that's... Um, that's the history of how that got placed. Of course, the final placement was um, the same person, Paul Crett, who was the uh, architect the that architect we talked of about. The tower, uh, the and, tower, and, and all Gary that. Yeah. Decided that instead of having those statues be at the very entrance to the university, to put them along the walkway, thereby tying the tower to the statuary and then to the Littlefield Fountain, and making of it a I have a relatively lengthy kind of analysis of the, the kind of white nationalist aspects of of that whole tableau, which I lay out in, in the Racial Geography Tour. You, so you, the, you also mentioned the uh, Martin Luther King statue and those others. One of the things that's clear to me is that all these symbols speak to each other, and they're almost certainly would not have been a Martin Luther King statue on campus if those Confederate statues hadn't existed. And without a Martin Luther King statue on campus, we wouldn't have had Barbara Jordan, and we also wouldn't have Cesar Chavez. So they all are, in one way or another, in conversation with each other in interesting kinds of ways. And and in conversation with the community, right? Because it was the protest about Jefferson Davis that led to the erection of his statue. Well, there, there were, there, yes, there was, there were, Students in particular were uh, thought that uh, not only Jefferson Davis, but the rest of the Confederate statues were problematic. The university, uh, when uh, back in the 70s, was not about to move them uh, or in the 80s or in the 90s or do anything else about them. And so one of the alternatives was to produce alternative symbology, and that's where Martin Luther King and, and that comes up. Now, if you ask most people on campus if Confederate flags flew in prominent places at UT, I think even people who really care about these things would be surprised to know that they did. Um, so where, where were they? I, I was really surprised by this myself. Where were they and 
How did they fly under the radar for so long? Well, they fly under the radar because most people don't recognize the national flag of the Confederacy. What they recognize is what, what has been publicized since the 1950s and 60s, which is the battle flag of the Confederacy, which is St. Andrew's Cross. Uh, that became the kind of the symbol of the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan and the white citizens uh, groups and all that at the time of, uh, as part of the anti-civil rights and anti um, Brown versus Board of Education movements uh, in the 50s and 60s. So most people don't know the stars and bars as the Confederate flag. That flag flew at least at two places. One was over the stadium, over the scoreboard, and it also flew at the Irwin Center as part of Six Flags, the Six Flags over Texas. So Six Flags over Texas became... Um, a kind of an important um, symbol of Texas, basically around the time of the Texas Centennial in 1936. The Six Flags Over Texas, of course, are Spain, France, Mexico, the Lone Star flag, the Confederate flag, and the United States flag. These are all the countries that Texas was under in one way or another. And one of the things that the state of Texas was trying to do in the 1930s was to distance itself somewhat from the lost cause ideology and to project itself as an American state and as um, a pioneer state associated with American pioneering move west, et cetera, and as a Western state. And so in the sense that the United States uh, was engaged in a struggle for freedom from previous colonial eras, Texas was positioning itself in that same kind of, using that same kind of notion of, of kind of move towards progress, progress towards freedom and independence. And so it, it emphasizes various uh, associations on the way towards um, this American destiny of westward movement and increased freedom and progress and all that. So within that context, the Six Flags over Texas became you know, one of the key symbols of Texas, and the Confederate flag was right there in the middle of it. There is still Confederate symbology here on this campus. If you go up to the tower, which was erected at precisely that time, if you look on the outside of the tower, it says 1836 to 1936. The tower was opened in 1937, but it was still part of this Texas centennial kind of celebration mode. And if you go up to the second floor and you go into what the main room of what used to be the university's main library and now is the life sciences library, and you look up, you'll see these big plastic cast uh, seals for the various, well, for all the six flags, for all those six countries. And right there is the symbology of the Confederacy. And one of the things that people have no idea about and actually is represented by the fact that there are two statues left on the South Mall. Those two statues are the assemblage, which is the Littlefield Fountain, and the other one is George Washington. So why is the George Washington statue still there? Well, it's not associated with the Confederacy. But if you go up to the second floor of the tower and you go into the Life Sciences Building and you look at that symbol of the Confederate nation, who's right there in the middle. It's George Washington on horseback. So in some sense, the the uh, daughters of the revolution who are paying for putting George Washington's statue, statue on the mall in actually 1930, didn't get up until 1955, I believe, or 1950 sometime. He's put there as a father of 
two countries. He's the father of the United States, but he's also the father of the Confederacy. And that comes out through this Confederate symbology of which the Confederate flags were a part from the 1930s up until they were taken down, I guess, a year and a half ago now. And names of buildings are especially significant on campus. And um, you talk about a lot of different names and naming and changing of names. So um, let's talk about some of those. First of all, the the main library on campus, the which everyone knows is the PCL. What, what is that That's stand Perry, for? Perry Castaneda. That library was open in the late 70s. In fact, it must have been 78 because they had their uh, anniversary last year. And uh, I think both the Perry and the Castaneda families were present for that. There was a Quite an event. But yes, that library was opened uh, in the late 70s and named after Irvin Perry, who was the first African-American who was hired in a tenure-track position here at the University of Texas in the School of Engineering. He actually went on to get tenure uh, and then passed as an associate professor. Uh, so it's named Jan Castaneda was uh, had been an undergraduate, a Mexican American undergraduate here, and then he went. I, I think he got his master's. I believe he got his PhD here as well. Came back uh, as a lecturer, and he taught for a while, and became one of the heads of the of a head librarian. I, I believe he was associated with the Benson Library for many years, and so that library is appropriately named after you know a couple of the pioneers in terms of the integration of of the University of Texas. And in the other direction, if we move down the hill to the Darrell K. Royal Stadium, mm-hmm. Darrell K. Royal is a hero to many people in, in Texas. Who was he? Why is he celebrated? And what's well, left Carroll, out of this? Well, Royal was a very uh, successful football coach. Um, in fact, probably more people know about him and his success than they know about anything else. And you can't name anybody else who's associated with the University of Texas. You can usually name either Earl Campbell or, or Dale Carroll. He won three national football championships as coach here. But what people don't usually know is that his second, the one in 1969, has the distinction of being the last all-white national championship football team. Daryl in later years claimed that uh, he didn't recruit any black folks for the team because alumni wouldn't like it, which is probably true, but he nevertheless, he didn't. And there's a movie about when the University of Texas at Austin was to play Syracuse in the Cotton Bowl. And the University of Texas football team refused to play or allow Ernie Davis, who was one of the early black stars for uh, Syracuse, uh, to play in the game. And so there's a whole movie about that. So racial segregation (laughs) in Texas football or Texas athletics in general was pretty extreme, although to University of Texas's credit, we were one of the first schools in the... um, Southwest Conference to integrate. Um, we had our first black track athletes were recruited in 1964. And finally, in 1970, actually, Julius Whittier, who just passed last year, was the first black football player at the University of Texas to play on a national championship football game team when the, the university won again. But even the basketball team, Royal went on to uh, be the AD for a number of years. The athletic director. The athletic director, right. And um, his football coach, who eventually integrated the team, uh, I have a quote of him saying that uh, they didn't have any black basketball players on the team because there were no black boys in the state of Texas who were good enough or tall enough to play. 
1954, the Supreme Court decided the famous case of Brown versus Board of Education, and that prohibited racial segregation in public schools. UT responded in various ways. But one of the ways is architectural, and your tour takes us to sites of several dorms that were new in the 50s. Maybe you could talk about that for a bit. One of the things that happens in, first of all, there's Sweat versus Board of Education, which is finally won. It's a Supreme Court decision that's uh, won by Heman Sweat and uh, along with Thurgood Marshall and the uh, NAACP in the 1950s. So immediately after that, we get our first black students at the University of Texas, but they're all graduate students. Under, and none of the graduate students were allowed to stay on campus until around 54 or 55, where there was space made in one dorm, which is down by where the San Jacinto garages are uh, for some of those folks. Almost uh, immediately subsequent to that, University of Texas, and this is now after Brown versus the Board of Education decision in 1954. In 1956, the University of Texas decided to allow the first black undergraduates to come to, to campus. At that point, they had to decide what to do about housing for those students. The decision was made not to offer housing at all to black women. So most black women who came to the University of Texas in 56 lived in a cooperative down on 10th Street uh, in what used to be East Avenue. I-35 has been now placed over 10th Street. And in fact, the dorm where they lived was destroyed in order to be able to um, put I-35 through. But anyway, they uh, it was a co-op, and there was a co-op where they, they shared with women from uh, Houston Tillotson. There were a few uh, black women who were allowed to stay in a co-op, which was across the street from where Carruthers is now, where the below what is that? The communications, the communications building system. is, right? Whitest House was a co-op in which a small number of black women were allowed to stay. But that was off campus. The university didn't own it at that point. The university decided to allow some black men to stay on campus. And those folks were placed in basically two dorms that were dorms that had been purchased after World War II as temporary housing for students on campus. They were barracks, their army barracks that were dismantled and brought to campus and built back up again. So one is was placed more or less where the Alumni Center is now, and the other one was is placed uh, over where the San Jacinto um, parking garage is. Ironically, in that period of time, the law school had decided to build a new, very luxurious dormitory for graduate students and law students. It was the first uh, dormitory that was air-conditioned on campus. It was opened in 1954, shortly after the Brown versus the Board of Education Supreme Court decision. And the dean of the law school decided to name it after William Simpkins, who had been a... Um, he was a law professor uh, for 30 years, uh, very well known. But he also was Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. He and his brother who was actually a UT regent, had started the Klan in, um, in Florida. So right after, within weeks to months after the Supreme Court decision, the head of the law school decides to name a dorm after uh, Grand Dragon, the Ku Klux Klan, and right behind it is the wooden tar paper shack uh, army surplus dorm that they designated for black students in, in 19, two years later in 1956. So the justification was uh, 
Hard to miss. Hard to miss. Pretty, pretty complete, yeah. Let's finish up with, with something else that surprised me, um, the story of the Eyes of Texas, the song that students sing yeah. without probably knowing the history of it. Um, so you take the tour to the to the Texas Cowboys Pavilion, which is also right down there mm-hmm. by the dorms you're just talking about. Can you tell us about that site and about the activities there? Yeah, we cover this uh, in two places. One is uh, in front of the um, Robert E. Lee statue. Robert E. Lee, very few people know this, and it it, it does seem <laughs> strange, but Robert E. Lee became a university uh, president right after the end of the Civil War. So he loses the, uh, it, it, the Civil War, and within a couple of years, he's the president of Washington University in, in Virginia, which later becomes Washington and Lee. He's the president, and there is a young man by the name of Prather, who is a law student under him, who subsequently became a president of the University of Texas. Now, one of the things that Prather brought to the University of Texas when he came was a saying. Robert E. Lee, at the end of every speech he made to his collective students and to faculty members, would say, the eyes of the South are upon you. And so when Prather got to the University of Texas, he decided to take freely from um, from what Lee had been saying. And at the end of his speeches to his students, assembled students and faculty members, he would say, the eyes of Texas upon you, taking it directly from Lee. Students, of course, found that to be interesting, and they decided to create a satirical song about it. <laughs> they put words to it, the eyes of Texas are upon you, and the, the words are probably very familiar to many of you who are listening to this. Uh, and they put it to a familiar tune, which was I've Been Working on the Railroad, which actually comes from I've Been Working on the Levee, or Levee, which is either a work song sung by black folks or a minstrel song that was developed making fun of black folks, but either one, they, they took that tune. And then his first performances were in minstrel shows, in blackface minstrel shows. Um, the Hancock Opera House down the 6th Street was actually the first time it was performed, and it was performed in blackface. So it comes from the minstrel's tradition. It's a satiric tune, plays off of Robert E. Lee, and originally sung in blackface. And how is this connected with the Texas Cowboys? Well, the Texas Cowboys are an interesting group. It's one of the primary, what do they call it, spirit groups and has been around for many years. They certainly sing the song and all that. But one of the things that the Texas Cowboys was most known for was that they would put on minstrel shows as part of uh, sometimes twice a year, but almost always at least once a year during either the fall homecoming or during the spring roundup celebrations. And so they would put on minstrel shows. They were comedy shows and musical shows. As many as 60 of these young people would dress in blackface and cavort around. The racism was so extreme that they also played Mexican-Americans in blackface. So you have (laughs) stereotyping and... um, denigration of Mexican-Americans in sombreros and charapes and things like that in blackface, as well as what they consider to be black people uh, dressed in stripes and other kinds of disparaging kinds of ways in blackface. And that was that went on until 1964. Mm-hmm. Until 1964. 1964 and 1965, it was outlawed. There was one final young cowboy who raced across the stage in blackface. But there's been kind of racially 
tinged um, play, you could call it, uh, associated with the Roundup for years and years, uh, well through the 1990s. Well, thank you for making this history known to all of us in the community and I think to a lot of a lot of people outside the community who'd be really interested in it. The website will definitely make it accessible for people on campus and um, off campus too. So thank you and thanks for talking to us today. Well, thank you for bringing me in and thank you for asking me insightful questions and giving me a chance to talk about what's going on here on campus or what went on on campus. Great. Thank you. 15-Minute History is produced at the University of Texas at Austin in partnership with Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, follow us on social media, and visit our website for more information and resources. See y'all next week.